Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 9 as we continue our study of this uh, minor prophet toward the very end of your Old Testament. One of the uh, prophets which was uh, raised up by God, who was raised up by God during the time of the return of the exiles to Jerusalem from Babylon and Persia. And uh, as they embarked upon the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the temple there under God's instruction, uh, and then later under Nehemiah's leadership, the rebuilding of the walls to the city and all of those things, God used these men, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, to teach the people and to prophesy among the people of God's promises, uh, of God's judgments, uh, in order to lead the people back to the Lord as they had uh, in some significant ways drifted from him and forsaken their responsibilities to him. We're going to turn tonight uh, to Zechariah chapter 9. My goal, uh, though I have to tell you, my goal is to do all of verses 1 through 17 together. I think there's some very valuable and beautiful things to be learned from studying it that way, which is the, the purpose behind uh, the reason that I've structured it this way. But I have to tell you that I think I listened to two different sermons after much of my study last week on men that had planned uh, to preach verses 1 through 17, and neither of them did so. And so they got about halfway done uh, into verses 10 and 11 and called it quits and then came back with a part two. If time gets away from us, I will not hesitate to do that rather than just keep you here or rush. But I, I think that if we can, if I can stay on task and try to be brief and uh, not so wordy that maybe we can move quickly through some of these things and find some valuable uh, teaching in its totality, in its entirety from this whole chapter together. Uh, in, in chapters 1 through 6 of Zechariah, we saw this night of visions where the Lord, through an angel uh, and through visions, visits Zechariah and takes him on the tour, as it were, of like Chase has pointed out, this tapestry with these different squares or this painting with these different pictures, which represented these different visions. And this accompanying angel, which uh, interpreted the visions, and the visions were about the promises of God to judge his people and to return to his people and to encourage their uh, faithfulness and their obedience and their faith in him to protect them and to help and empower them if they would but set their minds to the work that he had given them, but to help them uh, to bring it to completion. Then in verses, in chapters, I'm sorry, in chapters 7 and 8, you have a bit of an interlude. Those two chapters definitely go together. They kind of make one giant chapter, and they serve as an interlude between the, the chapters of the visions, which are very odd and strange sort of texts, and then the, the rest of the book, which begins tonight in chapter 9. So we have the visions and then we have the interlude, which deals more directly with some actual promises of God, words of God that are given to Zechariah to preach to the people. Uh, and the purpose of them in seven is primarily the issues of God's promised judgments in order to purify them so that he could come and dwell again in their midst. And then we have his promised prosperity for them in chapter eight. So promised judgment and promised prosperity uh, and protection, provision, restoration of his people in Jerusalem. Uh, this 
this hope given to them to encourage their diligence and their work and their obedience, that God's not forgotten them, that though they are dejected and oppressed now, it will not be that way forever. And so God encourages them with this kind of immediate and temporal promise that he will purify them, that he will return to them, that he will establish right worship among them. He's given them some very practical things to do and to remember. And that if they will do so, that they will enjoy this profound blessing and prosperity and protection of God. Now, that means that in chapter 9, we begin the section of his book, which is going to pertain, it's going to be the prophecy which pertains primarily, and I'll, I hope to show you why as we move through it, but what will then come of God's people uh, between the period that will come a couple of hundred years after this, the, the time of Alexander the Great and the overtaking of the Greeks of, the, of Palestine, the, the, the marching and, and the establishment of the kingdom and the territory of Alexander the Great, from that time forward up until the advent of Jesus. And so the prophecies now are going to deal primarily not with what's going to happen to them today, but what's going to begin to happen to them by way of prophecy and promise in 150 to 200 years. So we're in the 500s now, and Alexander the Great is in the 300s. And so we're looking at 150 to 200 years in the future. So the events that God has promised by way of encouragement to, to, to encourage these people, promise to happen for their judgment, for their protection, for their provision, and so forth under God's sovereign care in a couple of hundred years and then moving up to and what's going to happen to them throughout that time up to the advent of their ultimate king, Jesus, when he comes to take on human flesh and dwell among them. Uh, chapter 9 is somewhat difficult structurally, and many, many people preach the first eight verses alone and then preach either verses 9 and 10 and 11 or 9 and 10 together as one, or they preach from 9 uh, down through the end of the chapter together. So they have either two or three um, sermons on this text. The reason they do that is because the first eight verses deal with before the king comes. And so you'll see the prophecy very well known in Zechariah 9, the prophecy of Christ that is found in verses 9 and 10. You'll see it when we get there. So that the king is now coming to sit enthroned among God's people in Jerusalem. But prior to that, uh, prior to that there is this movement of God toward his people. So that there is this movement of God, even geographically recounted, I'll show you, down through the enemies of God in judgment as he marches toward Jerusalem, where Jesus the King shall be installed and reign. But so the issue to begin with is before the King comes and is his throne is established in Jerusalem. And it's the issue then in the first eight verses of the judgment of God that is coming on the enemies of his people. Then in 9 and 10... We're going to have the character of the king, the authority of the king, the king himself as the subject of those verses. And then verses 11 and following, we're going to deal with the king's people and particularly the victory of those people. So I want to try to take all that together so we can see this movement of God in judgment toward Jerusalem and toward his people that results in the establishment of this messianic, wonderful 
universal, eternal king over God's people in Jerusalem, and then the benefit of that king, that he is not just that he's come, but that in coming it's a great benefit and advantage for the people of God, for their faith and their life and their obedience and their encouragement. So we'll see the victory that comes after that. So I want us to try to see it all together. Before we re- uh, turn and read, we're going to begin in verse 1, read all the way down through 17. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord to help us. God in heaven, we ask you now to come and to open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word, from your law. We ask that you would open our ears, that we might be quick to listen to all that your spirit would say to us, all that you would say to us. We pray that you would give us humility as we study now, that we would not seek to impose our interpretations upon your word, but that we would allow your word to speak for itself and that from your word, even though there may be some things here that we don't know and fully understand, but that from your word, the truth would glare into our eyes and into our vision and we would see and behold the beauty and the wonder and the authority and the majesty of King Jesus that you've given to reign over us. So God, teach us now as we read, direct us, instruct us, convict us, and do all of this from the right uh, teaching and the public reading and proclamation of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Zechariah chapter 9 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind, or on all men, and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. (coughs) Excuse me. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. 
I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will reap, then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will, the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, or probably they're with sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine, the young women. Now, as I said, This chapter opens with the great uh, promise here that you will see uh, finding its maybe fullest expression in verse 8. So so turn there and, and look at what he says. God declares then, so after he has made this march, the result will be, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. That is, now I am personally taking note of and providing care for my people Israel. So it's going to be this picture of God enthroned personally over his people as their protector and king. Now, in order for that to happen or to take place... And for the Israelites who are here oppressed and dejected and uh, in many ways beat down and tread upon to find great encouragement from this, God is going to, through this prophetic word to Zechariah and then through Zechariah to the people, he is going to recount his destruction of their enemies. So, so that's the, 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 the list here of the the nations that are in view is very specific and i i want us to see who they are and why it's listed in this way but at the most in the most general sense what we need to understand is that in order that god would do what he says in verse 8 that he will camp there and he will guard there and he will see with his own eyes so that no oppressor and no enemy shall trample upon his people again in order for that to happen, he makes his march to Jerusalem in judgment, and he does so by stamping upon all of the enemies of his people that are standing in his path that have oppressed them. Now, the enemies that are dealt with here is very interesting, the nations that are recounted. On the one hand, it's very noteworthy, or interesting at least, that these are not the major players of power at this time and those that have preceded it. So we would maybe think of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and also maybe like as is currently now in the time of Zechariah, the Persians. These major world and political powers, these major military might, uh, these forces, they're not the ones that are directly listed here. Now, the ones who are mentioned, uh, though they plagued Israel in times past, 
you know, some of the other maybe more popular ones, like the Edomites, maybe the more normal traditional ones, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and so forth, that have constantly been in opposition to Israel, that have constantly been the thorn in the flesh of God's people, they're not listed here either. They're all missing from the list. So who is it that's listed here? Well, they are certainly enemies of God, but they are ones, as I said, that perhaps plagued the Israelites in, uh, in, in a more significant way in, in, in times far past. So we can think back on, mentioned here is the, the, the land of uh, the Philistines, so, some of the Philistine uh, cities here. And, and we know of the, the, the difficulty that the Philistines presented in times in Old Testament history past to the Israelites. Why is this list the one that's given? We have Philistine cities mentioned. We have Syrian cities mentioned. So the cities of Syria, like Damascus, would be its capital. And then we have Phoenician cities, those of Tyre and Sidon mentioned. Why? Well, it's very important because... God is now marching through Palestine, which is the land of promise. So that in order to establish his people in their protected and provided for um, nation, in order that he would set them and guard them and encamp with them, the picture that's being painted is that he will stamp out all of the inhabitants of the land of promise that God had long ago declared he would deliver to his children. That's why it's these specific nations. And it's geographically interesting because they come to us in a list from north to south in a roundabout way. So you notice in the text that first we're told that the word of the Lord is against. So an oracle comes, it's almost always in terms of judgment. And it comes against, first, the land of Hadrach. And secondly, Damascus is its resting place. That doesn't mean resting of peace. It means that the word of the, the word of God, the judgment of God in his word and declaration, that it is going to symbolically come and settle there. That's, that's bad news. Okay? That it is going to come and it's going to rest in Damascus. So two things about these first ones. Hadrach is not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament, so we don't know anything else about it except right here. Thankfully, we can do some Assyrian historical and geographic literature uh, searches, and we find that it is identified with, I don't know, this, a city called Hatarika or Hatarika, and this is north of Hamath. Now, look, I, know, I don't want this to be a geography lesson, but the reason that's significant, and I'm telling you that, is because there's this little bitty town that we now know is situated to the extreme north in Palestine, which would have been right upon the border or the, 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 the demarcating line of the land, the top end of the land of promise that God promised to give to his people. And so God's not going to come and deliver half of it for them. He's going to start at the very top. All of it will be restored to them. You see, so that all, God is now on the move. God is now marching 
toward Jerusalem in order to fulfill his covenant promises for his covenant people. What's taking place in Zechariah 9 is what was anticipated through the vision of Zechariah 2. What is it? Verse 13 of Zechariah 2. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. What? And is now on the move on behalf of his people. Well, what's God doing? Nothing other than every single thing that he promised to do. He is coming to see to it that he, his covenant promises are established and kept for his covenant people. So he begins at Hadrach in the north. Then we're told that it moves down to Damascus. Now, Damascus would have been, I don't know, 100 and, uh, 150, 180 miles or so to the south. So beginning way up north in Palestine and moving down south, you get to I mean, you get to Damascus. Damascus is here mentioned because it would have been the capital of Syria at this time. Uh, and it would have been the seat of the Persian governor of the Trans-Euphrates. Additionally, the Arameans, uh, which would have been those that inhabited Damascus, the Arameans, it's been an Aramean city, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, they would have been a long-standing, well-known, and problematic enemy of Israel, and Old Testament history tells us that. We know that to be true. So I want you to get the picture here. He's going to begin at the very border of the land of promise that he is committed to give to his people. And then he's going to begin to move down. We're told that he's going to move through Damascus, which would have been the seat of power. This would have been the place of the Persian seat of the governor. That would have been the ruling agent probably in all of this land at the time. What, what, what's the point here? The picture is that God's judgment comes again against the greatest. Because God is the king. And this is God's land and he will give to it who he chooses. Okay? And that, and, and, and that it will absolutely be handed out in accord with his holy will. And then we're told about Hamath. Okay, Hamath would have been probably between Damascus and uh, Hadrach, as we're just told about them. It, it would have been back up north just a little bit. Uh, it would have still been in northern Palestine. So we're still way up at the top, which is where we begin. Then the text tells us, um, and, and by the way, let me tell you, it, in verse 1 there, for the Lord has his eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. There's some debate about how this is to be translated and how it is to be understood, the force of it here. I think the best option is to understand that the reason God is now marching and God is now moving and has now roused himself from his holy hill is because he is the God of everybody. It's not just that God superintends and oversees the events of his children. He sees what's going on in Damascus, and he sees what's going on in Hadrach, and he sees what's going on in Hamad. He sees all of this, these events, these world events, these political and these um, socio-political events that are taking place, and he is the Lord of them. That's going to be one of the main thrusts of what we're given in this picture of judgment, that God is now moving because God's eye is on man, all mankind and on the tribes of Israel. So then we're told about Hamath uh, also, which borders on it. And then look, then look, we're told about Tyre and Sidon. So these would have been, uh, now we've moved from Syria up in northern Palestine, these Syrian communities down into a Phoenician territory. 
So these Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon are uh, very significant. They would have been moving down a little bit further into the south, but back west. Okay, and so Sidon would have been the northern of the two cities and Tyre would have been below it. I want us only to focus on Tyre because Tyre was very significant and it's the one that the, that the language of the text brings out for us. Notice it says that Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, what's it saying? They thought they were wise, but God marches upon them anyway. And the judgment of God, worldly wisdom. And I want you to see that we're told of Tyre that she was indeed wise in the eyes of men. Militarily speaking and economically so, Tyre made sure that it became the political and the economic and the naval power of the time. So one of the things that had happened is the old Tyre, so thinking of, I believe it's Ezekiel 36 and some of the older prophecies about old Tyre, the old city of Tyre was on land. And that would come to be demolished, I believe, by Nebuchadnezzar at one time and and leveled pretty much flat. But then uh, they would build another city, what came to be known as the new city of Tyre. And they built it on a small island about about a mile offshore into into the water, into the ocean. And so they build about a mile off into the water on this little small island. They build this fortress And it would have been a fortified naval fortress. I don't know any other word for it. I heard one commentator say that the the walls were an estimated 150 feet tall that encompassed and completely sealed. I want you to get a picture of how, how tall that is. I don't know how tall the tip of this steeple is, but I know we had to get an 80 foot extension lift for the guys to put it up there. It is up there. So you gotta think at least double this to the tip of the steeple from the ground. So, so that twice, that was the wall that these people built around the city. So notice what it says. Tyre has built or made herself a rampart. Now, what was the result of this wisdom? Well, it worked. Gold and silver ran in such abundance that they became commonplace, that of dust. Look at what we're told. And heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. The point is not that it was as plentiful as dust. I mean, I don't don't think that's the point. And, And I would agree with most commentators and scholars that would see the point is that there was indeed so much of it. They were so established that it was nothing. It was just commonplace. The gold and the silver was just a part of their booming and flourishing and high class society and economy. This place was incredibly strong. But though they are wise, look at verse 4. Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. Notice because that that city would have been out on the, the sea there. And she shall be devoured by fire. It's amazing. Now look, we're going to move from those those Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon to the Philistine cities or the cities of Philistia. So we're going to move even farther south now, okay, down toward and into Israel. Look at what it says. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Now, a lot of people think that economically, militarily, uh, and so forth, that this is significant because the Philistines had kind of 
let their guard down because of the strength of the cities that were around them. You know, the strength of the tires of the world and of the, the other cities up above them that, that they had, to some degree, just kind of fallen asleep at the wheel. But when they see what happens to Tyre and to those cities above them, they will see it in Ashkelon and be afraid. Gaza, too, shall writhe in anguish. And what we're going to see is, um, I, 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 I think I'm in agreement that much of this that we're reading about these cities actually found its, at least most of its temporal fulfillment, if not, if not all of it, in, in, in the immediate, when Alexander the Great came and decimated this land in Palestine. And one of the things that he did in Gaza was incredible cruelty to the king in Gaza. I think he was drug around in the streets. It was, it was, a, it was a terrible sight to behold. Look at what we're told. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king, it says, shall perish from Gaza. Now keep in mind, this was written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by a man some 200 years before those events with Alexander the Great happened. And Alexander the Great was no Christian. He was a Greek a pagan military might. But God used him. That doesn't mean God was responsible for his sin and cruelty. There's a great mystery there. But God who sits enthroned above the clouds and in the heavens, that though we are free in some sense to to choose to do what we will, none of us, not even the vilest of criminal, operates outside of the scope of, of, of God's plan and of his absolute sovereignty over all things. And so in some profound and mysterious way, God is able to oversee and superintend and even plan all of the events of human history that when someone thinks they are the strongest and even when they shake their fist at God like the men that hung Jesus to the tree did, they cannot help but serve God's purpose for God's people. You see that? And so through Alexander the Great, I think many of these things happened. As he came through this land and for some of these exact cities, laid them bare. So much so that the king in Gaza perished in a cruel way. Ashkelon will be uninhabited. That means it will just be laid totally desolate. A mixed people, that is a, a, a foreign people, shall dwell in Ashdod. In other words, they're going to be taken uh, by, by people from outside, it's not going to be the people that once called at home. I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Now, I think most of those things uh, found their fulfillment with this uh, conquering of Alexander the Great. But now, it can't be limited to that. This prophecy cannot be so narrowly seen in, in that scope. And the reason we know that is because of the very next verse. Shockingly, look at what we read. Right after he does all of this to cut off the pride of Philistia and from all these other nations, as he moves from north to south, approaching his holy city, where his holy people are in Jerusalem, what does he say? But I will take away its blood from its mouth. That's Philistia. And its abominations from between its teeth. Now, not to be too graphic, but this probably has to do with pagan uh, sacrifices that involved uh, eating. We'll just leave it at that. And so God here declares, but in Philistia, I will bring a cleansing. I will bring a cleansing. Why? Because there 
I too or it too shall be preserved a remnant for our God. It's amazing that a remnant is going to be kept in Philistia. And not just some lowly, pathetic remnant that's going to eat the scraps under the table like the dogs of the family. It shall be like one of the clans in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. They're going to be equals. How do we know that this prophecy here, even of God's judgment and restoration and protection and guarding as he marches to his holy place in Jerusalem, how do we know it's not limited to the historical events that took place with Alexander the Great? Because this transformation of the Philistines, we do not have any record of that taking place. We don't. God says, then I will encamp at my house as a guard and none shall march to and fro. They will be protected. I will see with my own eyes. I want you to see that this, the fulfillment of this, that this is the the hope. This is the beginning, maybe, of the hope from Zechariah 2 going back there. There are great connections between chapter 9 and chapter 2. Verse 10 Sing aloud and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. But then look at 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. And then turn over to chapter 8. Look at verse 20. The same thing. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, that is foreign cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. For I myself am going, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. What's envisioned here? It's the hope of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's the beginning. And maybe there was some aspect of this that was begun in this time and in the times that came after. But ultimately we see this beginning when we find, let me find my references here, uh, in partial fulfillment, right? In the New Testament, when Philip goes about preaching in Ashdod, that is Azotus in Acts chapter 8. Or when Peter is doing ministry in Lydda and Joppa for the gospel in Acts chapter 9, those are on the borders of the Philistine lands. Because there is this hope and there is this promise that yes, God in his judgment has come and he has trampled out the opponents and the foreigners and those that opposed him and his people from the land of promise. But even from among them, God is at work to save some and to bring them into his people. To build his kingdom. To have a bride of beauty as the end of this chapter talks about that is glowing and and splendor and glorious. Man, like the other preachers, we will not do all of chapter 9 tonight. Sorry. But what I want you to see is that he moves down from north to south, heading to his holy hill in Zion. But then look at the great promise of verses 9 and 10. So the first was judgment, but the second point is going to be authority. 
That is the authority of the king that comes. And so then he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, no longer is the object or the, of his wrath or the subject of these verses the enemies of God. Who is it? It's what will happen among the people of God, the daughters of Zion. And what's happening? Great rejoicing, profound excitement. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. The reality is that the advance of God, as he marched upon the enemies of his people and he moved toward Jerusalem, it's a picture of what finds its ultimate fulfillment as he comes and takes upon himself human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he enters into that city as its great and glorious king. And I think we'll wait until next week to see uh, the authority, the character of that king given to us in 9 and 10. And then the benefits or the victory for the people from the presence of that king in the following verses. But I want you to see that together. God is moving and working. And the result of that moving and working on behalf of his people is the installation of a great king. Friends, that king is Jesus. And then there is great rejoicing because of the king, because of the nature of the king, the character of the king. And what what we're going to find is that there is going to be then great victory. There's going to be great victory because he is not a king that shall lose. But he will provide for and protect and preserve his people to the very end. So there's great victory because of the king's authority. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, what a privilege it's been to consider to consider your judgment upon our enemies tonight. God, I pray that we would all be careful to remember and to know that you are the author and the sovereign director. According to your infinite wisdom and your exceeding might of all of human history. That there is nothing, that there is no one that operates beyond the scope of your reign. God, that's good news for us, your people. Because that means no one, that nothing, not height nor depth, not principality or power, that nothing can come against us that you do not mean for our good and your glory. And nothing can ultimately snatch us from you because they must serve your purposes. And your stated and promised purposes are for the deliverance and the salvation of your people. I pray that you would also help us to see and to understand from this uh, text as we have recounted these historical events prophesied hundreds of years earlier that literally came true that your word is sure. As Chase said this morning, the word of Christ is as good as the presence of Christ. God, may we be found trusting in your sovereign hand and believing with absolute authority your sure word. And God, we pray that you would protect us, that you would ultimately stamp out evil and deliver us from our enemies. 
God, and bring about our final victory in Jesus. God, we thank you for Christ, our King. God, there is great rejoicing. There is great rejoicing in Israel because the King has come. And through your King, you reign and you save us. So God, help us to love Jesus more tonight maybe than we ever have. In his precious and wonderful name we pray. Amen.